Could you open up to Psalm 118? Psalm 118. It's right in the middle of your Bible in the book of Psalms. That's where you find Psalm 118. Two weeks ago, I was speaking to a fellow pastor over the phone. I was driving down Ball Creek Road on a snowy Tuesday morning. It was after a staff meeting. I was driving back to the office. And before I said goodbye to this pastor, I gave him a simple Christian blessing. Pastors do that with each other. You have to to sound holy. And I said to him, remember, what I said to him right before I hung up, remember this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And the pastor on the other line said, hey, did you know that's from Psalm 118? I said, yeah, I know that. And he said, did you know that that is probably the psalm that Jesus sang as he walked to the Garden of Gethsemane and the night before he died? And I said, wow, yeah, I didn't really think of it, but that is amazing. And I said, see you later, goodbye. And I hung up the phone. That was our conversation at the very end. And as I'm driving and driving down Ball Creek and looking at the beautiful frosted uh, trees and pine trees, actually that thought kept hitting me. How could Jesus sing? How could he sing? Especially, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. How could he rejoice on his way to death? How could he sing a song of praise before the cross? How could Jesus even hint at the idea that this is a good day while one of the most horrid moments in all of history was knocking at his door? A traumatic day. An unspeakable event. He was a lamb led to the slaughter. And he's rejoicing? How? I I think we need to understand that. I need to understand that. Especially as we face the future of another new year. For me, honestly, entering another year, entering a new year is like going into the mouth of a dark cave. Every year. I don't, I don't know why. I think it's because I'm a fearful guy. But part of it, it's impossible to know what lies ahead. Like if I look past uh, last year, one year this time, I'd have no idea some of the things that took place in 2017 would have taken place. Loss of an elder, Murray Potts. Or actually last year, my son choked on a cap. He won't like me saying this, so I won't say it next service. But I was terrified. A lot of other things. It's like a dark cave, but I must enter it. It beckons us all. And as we get closer and closer to the mouth of that cave, I think there's questions, if we're honest, that stir in our hearts. Will I survive another year? Will I, will I make it? Will I thrive? Or will I be hanging on by a thread? Will I be eaten alive next year? I think those are real questions in the dark night of the soul we ask. Can I make it? Will I make it? And do I have enough? Because the future's scary. It is for me. I don't know for you. It's usually pretty scary. Last year I asked, are you guys excited about the new year or scared? Most people said excited. That rarely happens for me because I think I'm a pessimist by nature. But it's nothing compared to what it must have been like for Jesus facing the cross. Could you imagine that? He had to know. 
he had to know. And yet he sings. He sings this psalm. And my question is how? And what I've, as I studied that, as I thought about it, I went back, I read the whole psalm, and I said, man, this would be a great psalm for the new year. And it's 118, so 118 for 2018. I'm going to use some of the principles, hopefully pray through these all year long. And hopefully you'll do the same. So let's read Psalm 118 together. And then I will, more, more than anything, this is more of a devotional sermon than an exhort, exhortation. Psalm 118. The writer, we don't know exactly who the psalmist is, but he says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Ever. Let Israel say his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. And let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and he set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord's on my side is my helper. I shall not I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live. And recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteousness shall enter through it. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You know, we live in a very noisy world. I mean, it's full of noise. Televisions, phones, iPads, small screens. Big screens, tall screens, flat screens, handheld screens, 
constantly blaring. They're constantly flickering and flashing everywhere, every day, every minute. We are told that people are bored, so we use electronics to fill the gaps. I think it has more to do with fear. People are scared of being alone with themselves. And I think they're also scared of the sound of silence because, and here's a sneaky belief, I, I believe people are scared of silence because it's in the silence God speaks the loudest. We just don't want to hear them. That's why Psalm 46 says, be still or be silent and know that I am God. Because when all grows quiet and the future looms dark before our, our future, in our future, the heart has one question. There's one question in that silence, that pregnant silence. And this question's truly terrifying, honestly, and it needs to be answered. And I think people are actually scared of the answer. We're not sure of the answer. And that's what's scary. Here's the question. And do you know the answer? Is God for me? When I face the future, when I face terrifying things, when I face relational issues, when I face financial lows, is God for me or not? I think even sitting in this place, some of you aren't quite sure. Maybe your children have rebelled. Maybe your health isn't cooperating. And you wonder, is God really for me? It is here in this question where either the roots of solid trust build or, or this gnawing anxiety starts destroying. And it's also here where Psalm 118 begins. It's right here where Psalm 118 begins. The writer begins with confident clarity that of course he's good. Of course his love endures. So for him, yes, God is for him. Listen to verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. That's a statement of give thanks to him. It's a positive perspective of God. Why? Number one, he is above all good. I think, I think that's enough right there. Because I think that's really the basis of everything. Is he good or not? In the middle of your trial, that's your question. Is this happening because I can't trust him or he's good so I can trust him? This is saying, though, at God's core, he's good. That means he's excellent. The word in the Hebrew means excellent, delightful, kind, happy. Think about that. God is happy. Do you ever think of God like that, that he's happy in and of himself, with the Son and the Spirit, he's happy, joyful, buoyant, a bubbling fountain of cheer, goodwill, and pleasure, laughter. Ancient theologians would use the word providence to express this quality of God, meaning that for his people, he provides and protects. 
because he's good. And his goodness is what shapes and guides history, even your life, even your very second. I like to look at reality like an artist looks at a painting. A painting is always painted on a white canvas. That canvas is always white. There may be dark strokes, gray clouds, indigo blues of a storm coming on your painting. There might be light blues of a sunny day or oranges of a beach, reds of a party. But always behind the paint is a white canvas that never changes. Behind our reality, everyday life includes dark shadows of grief, the grays of suffering, the dark blues and indigos of sadness. We also have bright colors of beautiful, happy blue days, the oranges of Time with your family or reds and yellows of even a festive New Year's Eve. But behind these events, every one of them, the good and the bad, there's always the constant pure white of God's holy goodness. And it's good. He's good. So that's the first thing you have to get a grip on. As you face the future, God's good. And... I love how it also says his love endures. It uses the conditional phrase forever, but his love endures. That means it never stops. It never stops, especially I need that because I don't endure. I just don't. And when I don't, he still does. I think for me, the reason a new year always puts a pit in my stomach is because I've left so much unfinished in the last year. Do you know how much I failed last year? Man, so many times and ways I failed him. I could fill an empty warehouse with promises left unfulfilled, resolutions that were broken, people I've hurt, half-hearted accomplishments I barely pulled off. But even through all of my human waste and debris, and imagine all of it put together, God's love for me hasn't changed. It endures. He loves me just as much on December 31st as he did last year, January 1st. It hasn't changed, even though I have, because his canvas is white. It's good. He feels the same way about me today as he did the very moment I first believed. I think sometimes we get that excitement of faith and we think, Oh, we have a new relay. And then we still realize we still carry our baggage. Man, he can't still love me. I keep failing him. No, his love endures. It never stops. It's unconditional. So it's not only is he good, but his love endures. That's why in verses 2 through 4, he points out to each group, Israel, Israel, my people, the chosen one, church, his love endures. Say it. Hey, hey, Aaron, my ministers, you know, my servants, you who declare my name, declare it. His love endures. You are the ones that have to keep teaching and telling. So parents, tell your kids it's going to be okay. I can remember there were some dark days. Growing up with a family of six and my dad's job wasn't doing good. And I can remember 
My dad would at dinner say, we'll be all right. We'll be okay. And then he says, to those of you who fear him, and to me, those are the people that, those are the people that think, you know, nobody else really, nobody else seems to follow him anymore. It just seems like I'm the only one. He's saying, chin up. Don't be so depressed. His love endures. He's faithful. These two elements, goodness and love, not only in Psalm 118 are found, but they are woven through all of the, I mean, they are, they are two threads that bind the whole Scriptures together. In the New Testament, they find their climax in what we call the gospel message. The word gospel means good, and it's from a loving God. That's what John 3.16 is all about. The gospel is the epitome of verse 1. Gospel, good news. I even love how Paul gives a blessing in 2 Thessalonians. Listen to how he says this. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope. May he give you eternal comfort and good hope. So the goodness is talking about hope, that tomorrow I can face it because today he's good. So if, what, if he's good, don't you think he's going to plan a good future for me? Yeah, because he loves me. That's the point. Good hope rooted in love. Well, some of you may be saying, that's easy for you to say, you have not gone through what I have gone through this past year. You wouldn't praise God if you had to face what I have to face. Do you know how many people have turned against me, have hurt me, have many people have let me down? How alone I've felt this past year. This is where verses 5 and 6 come in. Verse 5, he's saying, out of my distress. NIV says, out of my anguish. But if you read, if you look up the Hebrew word for this, this means out of the worst situation you could ever imagine, you know what? I called on God and he answered me. And then verse 6, you know, the Lord is on my side. And then he asks the second major question. What can man do to me? What can anybody, what can you do to me? What can people do to me? If he's on my side, why do I worry so much about what other people think? Or who fails me? What can man do to me? I, I know people are nasty. They are. If we'd be honest, most of our problems come from people who've either hurt us, ignored us, ridiculed us, threatened us, mocked us, whisper behind our backs. In some ways, I don't want to face a new year because of people. I'm tired of being hurt by people. I wonder... Is that why you and I don't like the idea of another year? I don't know. I'm, I am just constantly amazed how powerful the opinions of others control us. It's, it's one of the most, to me, that's one of the biggest mysteries in life is why do other people's opinions really matter so much? I mean, it matters to me. Like even when I get here, up here as a pastor, it's not that I'm a people pleaser, but I, I want you to like the sermon. Why does it matter? Why can't I just teach the truth and let you deal with it? 
Why does it have to be about me? Because we just let people's opinions matter so much. And he's saying, don't worry about it. What can man do to me? It's a comparative statement. He starts comparing. And I want to work down the logic, work it, look at it like this. Okay, so the first thing, what can man do to me? Well, he can, since God's my helper, since God is all-powerful, since God actually it says, uh, verse 7, he's going to triumph over my enemies, man can only do to me what God permits. That's the logical answer to that. Man can only do to me what God permits. Even my enemies have no chance against me because he's on my side. He who has all power, all knowledge, all ability. And so he compares against enemies. People are against you. And in verse 8, he's saying, comparatively, I'm going to trust in the Lord other than, rather than man. So you've got to ask yourself, if God's love for me endures and it's still just as strong as it was the first day I believed, why do we care so much about the opinions of others? If God is good and he providentially wants to provide and protect me, why do I rely on other people to provide and protect me? Why do I rely on people to be my source of strength and satisfaction? God's on my side. That's the point. It's a comparative statement. Man or God? Man or God? And then I find verse 9 interesting, another comparative statement. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than trust in princes. We don't have princes, but we have politics. Why do we trust so much in politics? It's crazy. We need to stop obsessing over the president, over the Congress, over the Senate, over judges, over mayors, over decisions on news. We're obsessed about it. Donald Trump is neither a savior nor a fiend. Those who paint political polarity with either innocent whites, saintly whites, or dark evil blacks are betraying their lack of faith in God alone. Stop obsessing over the princes. Because the truth is, God is just as good now, and he loves you just as much as he did when Nixon, Ford, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush Jr., and Obama was in office. He loves you just as much. For that matter, his character hasn't changed even since George Washington was in office. He hasn't changed a lick. Truth is, according to 10 and 12, God can intervene at any moment. If nations surround me, the Lord can cut them off. I just use the name of the Lord in verse 12. He cuts them off. If they surround me like bees and they don't stop bugging me, God will throw them in a fire like thorns that get consumed. He cuts them off. If God's on my side, what can man do to me? Honestly, you have to ask that. Because I think we don't deal with that. I think some of us, if we don't have friends, we are depressed. Or if somebody says one wrong thing to me or offends me, we get angry. 
then you don't really you you are letting man do something to you. Don't let people steal your joy. Some of you need a little more reassurance. Some of you need to know how can I how can I be sure? Actually, let's uh, the logic keeps going so that only what God permits. And then so the logic from there goes, so if God only does what, if God only allows what he permits, he only does what is good because he is good. So the second thing is he only allows what's good for me. And if you think through that argument, it's the same one as Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who love God. So even in verse 13, when times are hard, even to the point where you're pushed and you're falling, the Lord will help you. I find verses uh, 17 and 18 interesting. Listen to what situation this comes out of. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord had disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So what these, these are two situations where people are going against me and I'm almost falling down. It might be an illness where I feel like I'm going to die or I'm being disciplined. God's goodness still over, overrides. All, those, are, those are allowed because it's still good for you. Deliverance is from God. That's what 14 to 16 says. The Lord's my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts the right hand the Lord does valiantly. Therefore, I shall not die, but I shall live. And the Lord, then when it goes through, must be disciplined from the Lord. Because Hebrews says the Lord disciplines those he loves. So give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures, and often his love is expressed in discipline. So then that goes to the next question. What do you need to be rescued from today? Who do you need to be rescued from? Do you need to be rescued from the bill collector, the cardiologist, the tax man, the grim reaper, yourself? How can I be sure well, this is where the end of this passage comes in. It, it gives us the, I'm not going to say the answer as much as the focus to all of our questions. Gives us the thing we can bank on the most. He talks about this person, this thing called the stone. And the stone is how I know God is good and his love endures. The stone is the evidence of his character, that I can trust it. And watch how the psalmist describes the stone, verse 19 to 21. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. What's the salvation? Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So if you take that, first of all, verse 22 says the stone was rejected. 
thrown out, not wanted. So this stone, according to the wise of the world or the wisdom of the world, the builders, the experts, the sophisticated, didn't want him. Didn't want to have anything to do with him. So if you ever feel unwanted, not included, not part of the wise or the elite or the building class, whatever that is, then you're in luck because this stone understands. This stone was rejected. And then it says in verse 22, this stone is going to be the basis by which everybody is going to be judged. That's what the cornerstone is all about. The cornerstone is what the rest of the building is built upon. So though the stone was rejected, it will be the stone everything else will be measured by. It's amazing. So in a sense, you could say, who cares then what the experts, the builders, the wise, the sophisticated say, for they will have to come underneath the judgment of the one they've judged. So the one they threw out is the one they're going to be accountable to. And then verse 23 says, the Lord did this. This stone that was put in to be the, who was rejected and is ultimately going to be established as the judge. Well, this was the working of God. It was miraculous. That's what it means. It's marvelous in our eyes. So that means the stone has been forged supernaturally out of the goodness and love of God for us. So you could say that when this stone appears, according to verse 24, we will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice to be glad in it. And it's the appearance of this stone. So that begs the question, who or what is this stone? It's very obvious. We're coming to a church that's Christian. That's obvious. It's Jesus Christ. He's the stone. There's only one person who meets the criteria. There's only one who was rejected by the wise of the world. There's only one that was ignored and ultimately thrown out and killed and not wanted, crucified on the crossbeam. Jesus Christ of the city of Nazareth was the stone the builders rejected. But he rose from the grave. And he's been exalted over every prince, every king, every lord, every wise person. He now is the judge of all men, the foundation of the church, the person who embodies perfectly the goodness and the love of God in physical form. So we give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever, his goodness and his love is embodied in the Son, the stone, Jesus Christ. He is the proof that we can trust God. And so that's why we can rejoice according to verses 25 and 26. Verse 24, we need to rejoice and be glad. Verse 25, so we can go to God through Jesus and say, save us. And give us success so we can find blessing through him as well. In verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is Jesus. He is the one that will bless us. I want to read this to you. When uh, we want, I think that when we get to the new year, 
I think we look for answers. We come even to church. Give me answers to my sorrows and my tough times. And reading this from this book by Frederick Beckner, it's, he says, when we come to Jesus, Jesus is not an answer man can give. Jesus himself does not necessarily give answers. He gives himself. And so in the, and he writes, in the midst of the world when we live in, in the midst of the absence of the Father, Jesus gives us himself. I think so many times we look for answers for our specific situation. And I, I agree with him. I think often he doesn't give us answers. He gives us himself. He's by my side. He's good. And he loves me. I think much of the problem with faith is God's invisible. I can't see him. Because I can't see him, I don't necessarily hear him. I don't see this work in my moment, but do I trust the Son? In a way, I can see what the Son has done. He's died for me. And in that death, he proves that he's good. And he proves he loves me. And that should be enough. Which leads us to really verse 27, the question for you. Verse 27 says, the Lord is God. Jehovah is God. He is. That's a statement of fact. It's a statement of reality. He is the canvas behind the reality of pain. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. It says in 2 Corinthians that light is Christ. He's the light of the world. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Some scholars think this is re with reference to a burnt sacrifice and how Jesus was our burnt sacrifice. He went to the altar to die for us. But then verse 28 is the question for you. The psalmist says, you are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. Is Jesus your God? As you face this new year, as you face, is Jesus your God? Not is Jesus God, is Jesus your God? Is he by your side? Because I'll tell you what, I wouldn't want to face the dark cave of 2018 without the knowledge that I have direct access to the goodness and the love of God through his Son. I want you to go to Hebrews 4, and I want to give this as a prayer for you to work on all year long. I want you to see how it works. Hebrews chapter 4. In verses 14 to 16. And I give the I think this is what I think this is what you need to face the new year. This is to me one of the most important prayers given to us in the Bible, or what I would say structures for prayers. But it says in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
the stone the builders rejected. Let us hold fast our confession, what we believe, what we proclaim. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. So Jesus knows what you're going to go through. He knows what you're scared of. He knows what you're dealing with. Therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let's go before the Father so that we may receive mercy in the Old Testament. Loving kindness is what we translate to mercy. So receive his love and grace, which is his goodness in our time of need. We go through Christ to receive grace, his goodness, and his mercy, his actual love in our time of need. So whatever your time of need is, go to him confidently and ask for grace. God, give me Give me your providential leading in this situation. I need your goodness. But also, God, I need to know you're by my side. You're my helper. Pour out your love on me. That's why Paul prays. I pray for the church that you might know how wide, how deep, how, how huge the love of God is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in a sense, this is a meditative sermon. This is for you to consider. But before you go further, is Jesus your God? Is he yours?